You want to kick us off? Yeah, let's do it. Uh, welcome to the final Henry and Hops, everyone. We're here. It's been a long, strange trip, as they say. Yeah, how long has it been? Was the fir- Do you remember when the first one was? All right, so I was in Philadelphia, so it had to be after July 2012, and it was snowy, so it was probably um, January through or March or February of 2013. Or so I thought it was 2014. Yeah, I think it was 2014, because I feel like there was like a time period before we did the podcast even, where it was just an idea. Yeah, yeah it probably was. It was So it was like mid-winter 2014. Another so it's era. been at least... Yeah, it's been a, it's been like seven years. So here we are, <laughs> saying goodbye to oh uh, to this podcast. How many? I don't even know how many episodes we've released in that time, but that'll be interesting. Well, that'll I'll, I'll drop that here. During that time, we've released twenty seven episodes, twenty nine if you include these two. That's about three or four episodes a year. Not a good average, but not a bad one either. The intro song. We're singing along, drinking beer, and talking about politics. Uh, Henry and Hops, politics and beer. Adventures and thoughts for your ear holes to hear. So let's have a brew, maybe just three or two, perchance discover new shit that we never knew. So come along. That's the end of our song. Yeah. Oh, that actually is the end of. That's it. We just talk culture and shit. So we'll play a theme song there, and and then maybe we should crack these beers. Yeah, yeah, you go first, bud. Cheers. Cheers, indeed. Oh, yeah. Ooh. All right, so what are you drinking for the final episode? Oh, man. I think I already did this last, the last episode recorded, but we're going to talk about favorite beers of the decade. Um, I'm not going to get too much into that now, but I'm drinking a good old Heady Topper. I got. Oh, I was lucky you. enough to get fuck some. Fuck you, so, man. Yeah, I saved, <laughs> I saved I can't a believe you did this to me twice. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But man, it's uh we can talk more about it, but it's weird. It's like as the archetype hazy IPA, the beer that defined the beer that inspired the most um kind of the biggest trend in beer of the of the decade, I think unequivocally, it doesn't really taste like what we now associate with um with hazy IPAs at all. And I'm not mad about that. But how about you? What do you what do you what do you sip it on? Well, I, I just want to say on on top of that, I do feel like it like started more in almost a double IPA territory in terms of the way it tastes now. But like when I but that's just because they become so sugary and flowery and all this other sh- doof. Oh, that hazy IPAs taste more like what double IPAs used to before hazy IPAs existed. Yes, so I, I think, think so. To say. Yeah, I, I don't know. The, you said the, the same thing that I said, but I think. Yeah, it's a. It's, it like, we should talk about that because that's. I mean, I know that's not the whole whole decade. Actually, it's only been the last maybe three or four years. But fuck, man, it's really hard to remember what life was like in respect to literally anything from beer to politics. Um, in you know, 2011, 2010. That I was. Yeah, 20, early I was, Obama, the first Obama administration. I was a child. I was just a drunk child. You know. <laughs> Stone. All right. Drunk speaking of drunk child, child I'm gonna. To tell what I'm what I'm drinking today. Yeah, is, uh, it's a uh, interesting beer. For, I sent you a picture of it. It's from Pontoon Brewing, which is a Atlanta brewery. Pontoon Brewing. It's it's a version of their flotation device, which is a sour Berliner vice they make. But then oh, they sure. added a Schnozberries addition to it. And so Schnozberries are like obviously Willy Wonka. They're not a real thing. Um, so they made up a schnozberries recipe that they've been putting in stuff. At least I saw last year they had a schnozberries beer, so I imagine this is the same kind of recipe. So it's actually a Berliner-style vice with black currant, blackberry, raspberry, vanilla, and lactose, which is what oh makes God. up the schnozberry. 7.5. It's, it's one, like, it, when I think of, like, people doing weird stuff, like, like Willy Wonka-esque stuff with beer, and I'm not talking about, like, the best hot palettes or stuff but just like you want to find somebody who like tried to put butter in beer or something like that pontoon probably did it or tried to do it. <laughs> and if they and they probably did it really well if they pulled it off you know they released it i mean say what you want about i'm looking at the photo you sent me say what you want about that beer but it definitely sounds like it's complicated yeah <laughs> yeah for sure like they and and they do some like to be fair they do like a lot of great Double, double IPAs and like hops 
forward kind of beers too and and i'm sure they do some basic stuff as well but it's it's interesting to me how much weird stuff they do which seems to be like the place where they found a uh, a footing in the market here so, well i think with anyway. it yeah and with, that's a crazy footing and what i was going to say is that um the concept of a fruited sour berliner weiss with lactose like I don't know if I've ever heard of another beer that had all of those attributes. Maybe the one that I think really sets it apart, well, it's it's made, the fruited sour is now fairly common, but the fact that they're building off of a Berliner Weiss base is, seems to me very unique. And then the fact that it's also a milkshake version with the lactose is and, kind and of vanilla. crazy. Can't forget the vanilla, because I think the vanilla is key oh, to I did forget the about the vanilla. That's what would turn taste. me off the most, though, man. That's what would turn me off the most, the vanilla. But it's kind of like that vanilla ice cream with uh, berries taste that gets added in, mm. which I think is like the the thing that they're going for with that. And then the sour uh, comes in after. It, it kind of tastes actually like, um, like a really refreshing Jolly Rancher, if that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah it does like a yeah a jolly rancher that's refreshing yeah i just realized i, I just had repeated exactly what you said back to you. <laughs> um but yeah no that means i understand that's how i communicate that um well that's that's that's, that's great man i think these these two beers together might actually per- and i don't i'm not being facetious might perfectly encapsulate the, the, the 2010s in beer in america yeah, for real. Like, these are, like, the results of all the weird experimentation that's gone on. Like, I remember in 2010 feeling like there were very few <clears throat> major craft beer breweries in this country. I know that's a weird thing, but, like, what year was Beer Wars out? Do you remember that documentary we watched in college? Was it primarily about um, Sam Calagione at Dogfish Head? Yeah, and, and Sam Adams and this lady who, was, who used to run... I shouldn't say this lady. <laughs> this woman... <laughs> who used to run Sam Adams, who was trying to start a, like, beer line, but it was beer and caffeine, and it was before people knew how bad that was, or, you know, at least said that they knew how bad it was. So it was, like, before Four Loco and everything got banned. So she was trying to do it, and we knew when the documentary was out that it was already... She was screwed, basically. (laughs) Like, the whole Um, thing went up pretty quickly. 2009. It's a film about... Yeah. Like corporate breweries versus smaller breweries like Dogfish Head. Maybe Moonshot 69 was the one that she was doing because that, that link on Wikipedia is uh, red. <laughs> so yeah. no one's created it's that very yet. very defunct. <laughs> and then uh, Yangling and Stone also. Yeah, well, basically the idea was that uh, Anheuser-Busch and what is now Coors Miller were dominating the shelf space in grocery stores and just the marketing space for beer in general in this country and throughout the world and uh and i think that that's still true to a certain extent now but it's changed so much uh like like being able to get dogfish head just feels like a commonality now oh my god i think about so many of those i think about so many um different examples of beer at, at different price points and uh, I mean, obviously, that correspond with where I was financially at, at the time, but also just like the level of high of, of high end beers that exist now that aren't Belgian that are American just did not exist in in twenty ten or twenty eleven or twenty. Absolutely, you probably had like a few bourbon barrel examples. Like I feel like the um, uh, Goose Island. That one was probably yeah. around. That was maybe above like twenty bucks, but that was and maybe there was one twenty minute and stuff. Like there's a few, there's a few out right. there that were hard to get, but they were few and far between for sure. Yeah, exactly. And you know, it's I mean that's a great example, both of them. But um, uh, Goose Island, the uh, bourbon barrel stout of the various varieties. I you know it's funny. I've like over the last couple of years, and we can talk about this or not, but um, not not right now, but. Um, I've developed, I've been like growing kind of like a janky beer cellar in my garage. And I have, I have probably like an 07, like 09, 2011, 2018, like a random assortment of, so not a good vertical, but so many different um, Goose Island, various bourbon barrel stout bottles. Kind of Why? Probably, do, you don't, do you even like those? I I'm mean, being not, serious here. I No, no, <laughs> I got you. I love IPAs, IPAs, and to a certain extent, like, Belgian style 
uh, kind of more like wild ales, ferment, uh, like Saison, wild, uh, wild, spontaneous fermented stuff. It's kind of my wheelhouse, but um, you can imagine that like, I bought, bought a lot of like mystery mix, mix packs from Tornado during COVID mm, <laughs> and mm. a lot of, it's all, it's all, it's all, it's all uh, you know, um, cellar age stuff from various years that they're I've seen a selling. few pictures. They are like jackpots of beer people. It's I mean, crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. But there's a lot of stouts, as you can imagine, because I don't know. Basically, wild ales and stouts are the are the only two styles of beers really that age, <clears throat> like, you know, well, like really good for maybe like that can hit 10 years in some cases, right? Yeah. And not all of them can. So anyhow, what I was going to say is that Goose Island was acquired by Anheuser-Busch in Bev this decade. And, I th- yeah, also much later this decade, um, Dogfish Head and Sam Adams merged, right? And so... Yeah, Lagunitas was part of... Uh, Heineken. Heineken. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah. and um, a couple other big, big ones. New Belgium sold somewhat recently... Um, there's a big, uh, a but lot on of top like, of that, you've seen this diversification of these like small breweries that are sought after, like the Heady Top, like Alchemist, you know, like, like you've seen all of these, uh, like people experimenting with beer in a way that I, I would have, you know, I feel like we knew that it was going to happen in college, but I didn't think it was going to happen so rapidly and so expansively. I completely, completely agree, and I think. It's funny because I don't remember what the thesis of that movie that you talked about was. I was, you know, again, probably drunk and stoned. But I assume <laughs> it was that they were just going to, like, uh, squelch the competition. And there was, I think, this, like, existential crisis in the um, in the mainstream macro beer, uh, uh, you know, uh, producers community where it was like, do we try to – three options. Do we try to compete directly under our own brands? Do we just try to, like, force them out through through – the three-tier distribution system, which they had an un- unfair hand at because they could distribute their own beers through subsidiaries or not subsidiaries, but third parties, but um, small craft beer breweries could not get access to those. So that just like anti-competitive practices or buy them up, right? Buy them up. Don't compete, just combine forces. And I feel like by and large, the breweries, the, the macro breweries that have done the most, have been the most successful have been the ones that chose the third option, Right. So you see all these acquisitions. Absolutely. And that's the one option that that movie didn't really talk about. Yeah, it's funny. <laughs> I mean, maybe it seemed like, and to be frank, like in 2009, I don't think many people at these breweries thought that was a viable option or thought that, because that's kind of like, you know, admitting defeat. I mean, it's admitting that you can never do what they do as good as they do. So why would you try? Which is the truth. Yeah. Yeah, um, in terms of the distribution networks and the mass. Well, I meant the other way, but yeah, like I meant that like, and that's what's so brilliant about when they buy someone like Lagunitas and they explicitly, Heineken, Heineken's not, you know, AB InBev, but they explicitly were hands off. Same with Goose Island, right? Like a lot of these purchases are done with the promise that they won't interfere with largely anything. They just want a cut of the profits. And so that means that, like I was saying, like Goose Island and Lagunitas as two examples, were doing what they were doing better than the big guys could ever and couldn't modify it to make it better um but yeah and they tried point, they yeah. tried to like make all these fake craft beers like i that's that would be an interesting podcast on its own covering all the beers that budweiser oh and all these other companies like churned out that were fake craft you know like those fake pumpkin nails and stuff like i don't see oh any i love anymore. that yeah i love it <laughs> and like maybe i'm i think with i think with goose island actually to just backtrack a little bit i do think that budweiser largely made that brewery worse um and I mean, you know, they have that one beer. I think it's their wheat ale or whatever. That's like, it's it's like an area code is the name of it, and I think it's Chicago area code. But then they try to like rebrand two or something. Yeah, and then they had another one for like every like every major major metropolitan area, and that's only something that they would do under AB InBev. So I mainly meant their like barrel aged stout program. But Lagunitas truly is, from my understanding, complete Heineken is hands off. Well, I think they also have like 5149 at Lagunitas. They were very specific about it during the tour that like they weren't going to change anything. Which is So I, th- I think Yeah, I think to your point, I think that that was the case. Um and then the subsequent year they they took complete ownership, but oh, from my under- Yeah, it was like a two two-part deal. 
But to my understanding, um, that that hands-off approach has not changed. And the, the biggest reason, from again, from what I understand, that Heineken was so interested in Lagunitas, as, as you know, like Lagunitas IPA kind of is, is representative, uh, for better and for worse, in my opinion, of, Amer- of, of an Amer- a quintessential American IPA. And yeah, absolutely. Just, in, in, when yeah. I went to Italy, I was so shocked that everyone was drinking Lagunitas, except they called it like... La, La Junitas or something they they call it something <laughs> else but they, they that's hilarious they it was so popular there and well, I was, was shocked that they had even heard of it yeah well that's exactly it the reason that's literally you oh man you just teed me up so perfectly so Heineken which is you know I think one of the I think the most dominant European beer beer brands they recognize that um, you know switching the influences stream across the pond um uh, Europe was was ready to embrace American style IPAs, and there just wasn't a dominant uh, brand in the market in that space. And Lagunitas was already becoming, if not already, had become the dominant brand in America. They basically bought the beer company over again over a couple uh, sales, and then started including it into their distribution uh, um, efforts in Europe, and basically flooded, from my understanding, flooded the European market with it with this American IPA that was somewhat novel in a lot of markets. And I'm, yeah, I never heard you, you never told me that before, but Italy, but like that's, that literally was their plan paying off. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. It seems to have worked really well. And, uh, and uh, you know, it was also the same when I went to England, like it wasn't quite as prevalent in England, but it seemed to be around. Like I saw it at bars, which is, where this, you know, me, considering I, when I was there in college, like they were, you, you couldn't find a person who said something nice about an American brewery. Forget like finding somebody who would embrace it. Yeah. Her. Wow. Uh, anyway, uh, uh, while we're uh, talking about the history of beer over the last ten years, we should also kind of jump on what's happened to our lives in the last ten years because it's been yeah. a crazy decade for <laughs> us. Like we. Uh, oh man. Now, obviously, we're also a year past the end of the decade. We should probably say at this point, but well, you know, we're always a little late on everything, and I think we can make up our own restraints. Yeah. I think it's based on our life really since college in my mind that we're doing when we're talking about like what's happened. Well, um, and that's a perfect 10 years. It's like a perfect um, 10 years out of college. It's literally what it's been. So first year, uh, you, we, we both moved a bit um, from Bard. Where did you go initially? Where what, what was your trajectory? All right, real quick. I went from Bard, basically went right to San Francisco. Yeah, drove across the country. Went to my parents' house first, but that's not important for the purposes of this <laughs> timeline. Um, well, were you there probably, for like a summer, or was it? No, like just probably a... only like probably a long weekend. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then drove across the country, moved to San Francisco, uh, outer outer sunset, Forty Fifth Avenue. For anyone that knows, it was very sleepy at the time for a twenty one year old, uh, but. Mm, now it sounds damn near perfect as a 33 year old <laughs> um but anyhow um stayed there for i moved within the city and then left in 2020 uh my now wife was going to grad school at penn so we moved to philly had some incredible incredible two years we saw the start of my favorite podcast henry and hops um so that was pretty seminal um i sold <laughs> cheese i was unemployed for a while the cheese selling was great but unemployment was less so. I didn't even get unemployment. Um, and then moved back to San Francisco in 2014. New house. Been here since. Yeah. Various when, jobs. And you got married. Where were you living when you got married? Were yeah. So Francisco? got engaged, actually, in Philadelphia. Um, mm-hmm. And then got married a year and a half later in um marin county up in uh, inverness california on the beautiful tamales bay you were there um yeah, you, there. you drove you drove me to the wedding ceremony i appreciate that and you were and home. late i don't know if we can <laughs> talk about that but <laughs> oh god i i yeah i think i think about a lot of things i would have done differently with that marriage i mean not you know not the bride <laughs> or not anything significant um just like whatever doesn't matter um i think it was, it was great. great uh my i just want to go through what i did after bard yeah please no. so after bard uh i went to miami first for like six months maybe nine months i forgot I about a house. that 
Yeah, it's a really brief period of my life where I lived with uh, my wife and her two best friends. We all promised my my wife Jade. She uh, had to That's take right. like a semester off from college, so she graduated a little later. That's so right. we all promised her we would go down there and spend the last semester of her college life with her, as if she were still at Bard. And that's we an actually committed ever. to it. <laughs> that's uh, awesome. Yeah, so we, we went down, and uh, that's where I got my like, bartending training, which ended up right. helping a bit when I went to New York. Um, I, I did have like a job at TGIF down there. Pretty sick. And then, um, and then I went to New York in January of that year. Um, ended up working a bunch of like different restaurant jobs and theater jobs and uh, catering jobs to kind of work my way up the catering ladder while also figuring out that film was going to pay a lot more than theater and starting to do more film stuff. Um, and then uh, I left New York eventually. Uh, we, were, we, we moved from, uh, I was first in this apartment with two guys out in Brooklyn. And oh, yeah, uh, we were down, I was down there for like a year. And then I moved up to this apartment in Harlem where my wife moved in about three months into living there. Uh, and then I was there for a year and then we moved to this place in the Upper East Side and we were there for like four or five years I feel like and um, and then we left because uh, she surprised me and got into a, a accounting uh, master of accounting program at UNC so we went down to Chapel Hill that's kind of mean no it was, I mean it was great like not that it was a surprise it was just like out of, when she decided she was going to apply and then when she got into school it was probably a period of like four months so oh, wow. it, it all happened very quickly. Okay. Yeah, because we knew we were going to leave the city, but we were considering a bunch of locations. And then she got in. So we originally I was going to be in Chapel Hill for like half the year and spend half the year in New York. But after commuting the first few months, I realized I could just live in North Carolina and do a lot of stuff from there. Yeah. And, uh, and so I was there uh, until like last fall. And then, yeah, last 2019 fall, whatever that is, you know. And uh, then we moved to Atlanta, and man, I love it here. So I'm probably going to be here for a little while. But we'll see how the decade goes, because I couldn't have predicted this last year. Who knows what's going to happen over the next God. 10. Man, it's just been weird. It's been a weird... Because I guess I got, I got married halfway through the decade, and then I had... A kid. I didn't even mention that I had a daughter. I had a, you know, I had a kid... In San Francisco. Um, most, most of the way through the decade. Like, the vast majority of the way. Um, her, her, yeah, she turned, she turned, I know you know this, but she turned two on February 6th, so she's a little over two, which is, that's the craziest thing. Talk about time being relative and weird. Um, that's really surreal, and I, I don't want to get into that now, but like, being a parent is fucking crazy. And time, yeah, I don't know. I, I feel, I guess what I'm getting at, and this is, you can, hopefully you'll cut this and make me sound smarter, but like, I feel very much the same person as, as well as feeling like, a completely different person and I think that's what's weird about being you know growing up and being an adult is that I don't, I don't fully believe this but I think one thing that was said to me a while ago that resonated with me more recently is like being being an adult is like kind of just like a the collective um, it's like a collective action and self-delusion right faking it till you make it yeah sure absolutely I I also think that uh, that being an adult is it like when you talk about the idea that we're we're still the same people but you feel so different. Like I feel like as an adult you kind of and by an adult I mean like outside of college. I I think you start to get some perspective. Of course. Like I feel like my grandfather instilled in me this idea that your philosophical self will kind of be defined by your later high school and college years um and that will be kind of when you explore yeah. the intellectual world and then your adult life is kind of about giving back from the things that you experience and not that it's necessarily ends at 23 like some people go for phd some people take technical learning courses like your life should be continuing education in a lot of respects but at the same time there is this part where you have to give back to the world which you've taken from for such a long time and i'm not saying like you don't have a job before them, but it's a different kind of giving. I appreciate that dichotomy. I think the one thing I would question, and maybe I'm just not understanding this element, is like, does that mean is that you? Does that mean that generally, as humans or as you know, humans in this current place and time, we don't 
this might be true, but we don't really like significantly develop the intellectual core, intellectual like underpinnings of our future actions after we leave school. Oh no, I think you absolutely can and do. It just depends on the person. I feel like up until that point, it is mandatory to continue to develop yourself. That's like literally the process that you're in. Whether or not it succeeds is another yeah. question. But you know, for those who it yeah. succeeds for that's the point where you kind of you could say it's a blossoming in some ways to explore other intellectual roots like i'm sure we've done that to a certain degree but i also feel like when you have kids what you were talking about like the kids you know rapidly progress on that defining of self while you're already defined for this time period so it feels like so much is happening in their life while relatively little has happened in your life except with quarantine i imagine it's probably been a little bit different on your yeah, side of things. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. And I think that as much as I like question that, I, I think one of my fears is that I'm not as able to evolve on issues as much as I was like in college. Like in college, you know, in this, with this professional learning environment, you're, you're so like you're, you're, you're a sponge, you know, for, for to use an overwrought metaphor. And and being a sponge i mean a lot of it is just like validating your your maybe what you thought might be true but a lot of it is that you're really genuinely open to learn and be be wrong right and after you exit that like more formal uh paradigm i think the whole like being your 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 assumptions or whatever you kind of like your worldview being challenged is a lot harder to accept and as you get older at least speaking for myself I don't think I do enough um, critical examination as to my basic assumptions. And I mean, this is this this can go on. This conversation is like super bigger than we have time for, obviously. <laughs> but like it leads to you kind of like I, I certainly like look look for, you know, media sources that validate my own worldview, it, probably in a way that is not terribly healthy, although I do think that I am right. But yeah, I think last point real quick is that having a kid and now a kid that talks and thinks and still figuring out who she is, but like just like explaining, and I don't know how much she's actually you know internalizing any of this, but explaining like fairly complicated social dynamics and stuff and stuff. It's like makes you really like have to like explain something like uh, poverty, and I haven't really really broached this, but like in a in a way that a two year old can understand, which might not be possible again. But, like, it makes you really, like, think about the fundamental issues at play and all the things that you've maybe taken for granted. And that's actually kind of awesome. Yeah, let's uh, let's jump into some politics stuff really quickly before we get to the good stuff with our best ofs. We're going to do a lot of uh, rankings of our best of the decade at the end of this, as you, we know you all really appreciate our best of the year lists. And that was kind of like... I heard Steve really likes that the most. <laughs> well, I just think, uh, you know, overall... We've, we've done a lot of I, I, definitely our political episodes have been successful in the way that any of our episodes have been successful but I feel like I've had the most fun with you when we've done either like commercials or our best of podcasts and I know those are like the most irrelevant so that's probably why but it feels like sometimes we get so bogged down in the issues that I feel somewhat intellectually drained at the end of the conversation in a good way but it's still like it can be a lot to take on sometimes. Well, and like, it's just like, it's, yeah, I completely agree. And things move so fast. that not, A lot of it doesn't necessarily have the staying power that talking about, you know, like generally culture or just being silly does. And, um, and by culture, I mean like consumables in culture, beers and movies. Yeah, we're absolutely not going to talk about best visual art of the decade. If you were looking for best... Uh, artist <laughs> museum picks or like showcases that didn't come up so uh this is the end of the podcast and it's kind of coincidentally the end of the mcconnell trump era now obviously the trump era has been these last four years and the only reason i bring that up is because we did a specific trump era podcast and then we did a quarantine podcast so it feels like this is kind of the end of that period of the podcast but in a larger sense we also started by identifying a lot of issues that we felt like needed to be addressed and could be addressed in a bipartisan fashion. I don't know if you remember this on our early apps. And whenever we would find a bill that we really hated or like whenever we found a bill that we liked that was blocked, we found that McConnell was at the source of this. And this was like before he was even the majority leader. I think this was 
No. No, well, I was going to say it was after he was the majority leader when we discovered this. But I'm saying the bills were written before he was the majority leader. Like this, this uh, these actions oh, really? were happening in like 2008, 2009. In terms of the bills we were identifying that we liked back in 2014 or 15, whenever that was. Um, oh, got it. So I feel like looking at the history of what this podcast has been about it's so interesting that we're seeing this moment of transition even if it is a very like small transition because it's not like the dems really have overwhelming control of the senate but at the same time mcconnell is taking a step down and what does that mean oh is that a question (laughs) yeah i mean it's a large question but i want to i just was wondering if you like what do you think, like, the end of these two errors combined means for the future of this country? Do you think that we will see some sort of rebirth of these kind of value systems? Do you think the Republican Party is going to change? Do you think it's going to be third parties? Like, I'm just looking for kind of a general oh, yeah. overview a of, on that. Yeah. of reality in, in the next 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I just want to say I cracked my second beer. Because this is the last podcast, so, you know, holds barred. And I'm drinking an Atomic Betty, which is a double IPA from Moonraker Brewing, which might be the best, my favorite brewery of all time in Auburn, California, with uh, Galaxy and Citra Hops. It's fucking delicious. Anyhow, my thoughts. Um, I actually don't think this is the end of the McConnell-Trump uh, era. That's what I feel. I think that I didn't even watch it or listen to the... Trump's uh, speech at CPAC, and I know that McConnell's technically the minority leader, um, but I think that the next 10 years are basically, and you've been, you've been a better predictor of, of the future when it comes to um, politics than I have, I think, generally over the last several years, but my guess is that we go, we keep going down this path of Trumpism, and it's kind of awkward because Trump's not even you know, in power, but he's still the face and the general um, figurehead, de facto leader of the Republican Party. Um, I don't think, you know, January 6th did anything significant to diminish that, Um, you know, as evidenced by Cruz and others just like towing the line and a lot of people going down to see back and speaking. He's a god, man. They fucking love him. And I know the Trump base is smaller than probably it's ever been, but I don't think that the Republican Party, as it currently exists, which is in crisis, admittedly, has any um, idea of what to do absent of trying to hold on to the Trump base. I don't think they're... I think they're not confident there's enough voters that are not part of the Trump base that they can keep on their side while distancing from Trump. So while they're not in the majority and Mitch McConnell, you know, the era is over, I'm, I kind of think it's going to be business as usual, but things are a little bit less shitty um, because they can only really get used a simple majority um, in super select situations. And they're definitely, rightfully so, in my opinion, deciding to use uh, whatever called the budget, the budget um, reconciliation process to get through this COVID relief bill. Makes sense, and since it's, whatever, we don't have to get in the logistics, but since it's so soon, they can do it again, probably, but, like, I don't think anything's actually changed, unfortunately. That's my uh, two cents. I, I, I agree with about half of that, I'll say, uh, <laughs> in right. that I Great. think that, I think you're right about it not being finished. I think there are still going to be a lot of reverberations of kind of Trumpism through the GOP. I think McConnell is far from done. I think McConnell's mm-hmm. uh, base is a lot stronger than Trump's in some ways in the uh, foundations of the GOP because the GOP to me is an entity that is really run like the Democrats in some ways by corporate entities, right? That back all the policies. Like there's people that vote for them and then there's the people who help decide policies more than us. And, uh, and But they so, fucking hate the Trumpers. Well, know? that's what I mean is like that and that and I do think January 6th changed that equation a little bit. And so I don't think we'll fully see how that plays out until the next election, whatever that may be, where Trumpism is on the ballot. But I think you might see the kind of pulling away of the suburbs that we saw in this election in other elections. That being said, I think it's likely that one of those two Georgia seats here might go back. The 
unknown yeah, factor probably. for me is all of the Trump voters who lost faith in the Republican Party, regardless of how much they back Trump now. And that is a real phenomenon. Like I know people who are never who have professed that they won't vote again, uh, that <laughs> have professed that like you know the entire act of civic duty is basically pointless, and that they need a third party option, and they wouldn't trust the GOP to do anything. So those people, I don't know what the percentage of those people are in the polling because I don't even think they're being accounted for really. So I I wonder in the long run if there is a chance for a viable third party and not the libertarian party not these other parties i don't think that's going to happen in the next election cycle but i do think within 10 years you might see an emergent third party that represents different maybe extremist right views but maybe it's also the moderate right depending on which direction the gop decides to lean in the long run mm-hmm. uh, i do think nikki haley yeah, is going to be the nominee in 2024 either way see how that goes really i just feel like she's the perfect combination of keeping up some trump values while also playing to that gop base like she's the last chance of uniting those two fronts where i feel like everyone else is lost on one side of that gambit uh whether it's like you know cruz romney whoever it might be they 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 sacrifice something in that war uh where she like because she left she doesn't she didn't have to play yeah no i'm i I think the, the, the main um, issue with that is Trump himself, right? Oh, yeah. I just think it's impossible Trump really runs again. Like, I, I, I really do think it's possible that he has to leave the country because of all the criminal stuff, but he still has some sort of political influence because the party is going to have a hard time separating itself from something that became it became the whole party. Like, I've never seen that happen before in this country, but the closest thing is actually the obama era but it's not it's not the same by any means like when obama left democrats found a way of picking up to some extent i mean they certainly ran biden again but you don't see pence running off of trumpism it would have to be trump no and i don't think i don't think it's even close it's not even close yeah but i hear what you're saying he was definitely like a, a charismatic person that a lot of people liked if maybe they didn't love the policies that were underpinning him as a person. I can or, the po- or the party as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. Which, that's so crazy to me because, he, I mean, he wasn't super progressive, but he also wasn't super moderate either. And, like, it is it is fairly linear, even if you don't want to believe it's linear. Because, it, you know, it's... Yeah, and it's I often, I often like wonder, a, and this is a real question just as a whole, and I don't know that we're better or worse off, and we'll probably know this, like, 50 years from now, but I often wonder if... Obama had come a little bit later, like let's say he had come now and we had somebody like Biden then, would we even have the Trumpism or would it have like fallen to a Romney-esque candidate who kind of proceeded in the general progression towards, like would it have been as an extreme of a tra- transition if we hadn't picked somebody who was slightly more progressive than the moderate liberal position at that point? And also black. Or, of or black. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. and of, also black. Yeah. Like, did yeah. we step a little bit too far, and then that went way too far on the other side? Well, I, you know, like, I think common uh, cynical wisdom would suggest the answer is yes, but I, sh- I always, you hear this anecdote on the radio always about, um, like, people that were Trump, that were Ob- Obama voters that voted for Trump. And, like, Maybe they were still racist and trying to, like, performatively uh, show that they're not racist by voting for Obama or whatever. Maybe, you know, I'm not sure. I'm not trying to, like, paint all people that vote for Obama as not racist and people that vote for Trump as all racist, but, you know. um, I I really do think it had more to do with the way that they were pitching policies and who they were pitching those policies to. And and you saw some of those people honestly switch to Biden now. Like, some of those people are still Trump, but some of those... After did Trump. switch back. Yeah, yeah, no, you're right. But like, who's voting for who's voting for Obama both terms and then voted for Trump? I still don't know what that. Like, I, yeah, you're right. I don't know it, any it, of those people to be honest. But I feel like those people. I, I, we talked about this a bit before, but I feel like the large majority of people in this country aren't entirely paying attention. So both of those people played to the populist position to a certain extent, and so like the right. position tends and, to win. And like Hillary was universally hated. Yes. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we can't discount think, that enough. I think you're right. I think it's kind of a weird thing because, like, I think that personally, and this is a whole other podcast, right, spinoff, um, Henry and Hobbes, populism, what is it good for? 
Um, but like, I think that the term and the concept has been grossly misused during the Trump era, a concept of populism, and it's been made a four letter word. And I don't necessarily think that's tr right uh, or accurate. And I do think that you're right that in some weird fucked up way, like that mantle kind of was passed from at least messaging wise from Obama to Trump in a way that is like not grounded in at all reality of any of Trump's policies. But perhaps in messaging yeah well i think it's just like who do you decide to talk to to a larger extent but yeah yeah absolutely um but let's i, I just want a real quick like one paragraph if you can review of biden's first month now obviously it's not a lot to go yep. off of but just like how do you feel about it i feel like i'm of two minds right because the cliche which is also kind of true for my the obvious is that, you know, it's like we all can sleep a little better at night. We all aren't like worried that you know, the, 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 the button or the football is going to inadvertently end up in the wrong hands because Trump is just like really angry that Kim Jong-il said his hands were too small or something, right? Like it's like the, the drama of the day-to-day -day of the presidency, which never existed before Trump, at least in my lifetime, Right, like probably not since at least like some select moments of the Kennedy presidency when it came to Cuba, like like that 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 shouldn't be a fucking thing, right? You shouldn't be like worried about what the president's gonna tweet, obviously, and yet we all I think were and also worry, but also like kind of in a fucked up way excited to wake up and see what crazy shit happened, right? And like that just. And that's, I think, actually one reason why he was such a, com I say compelling in like a very neutral way, but you can, you can argue, I will argue that Trump was a compelling president. Absolutely. The worst president America's ever too. had. Yeah. Yes. Can't deny it. In a way that like all, everyone from, you know, the leaders of free nations to his supporters, to his detractors, everyone would read his fucking tweets. Yeah. I had For a lot of conversations reasons, right? with, with close friends of ours about who hate followed Trump on Twitter about not doing that, and uh, it, it was a hard ar argument to have with people because I was yeah exactly like, like Biden is to, is certainly not that right, and that's generally very positive, right? And so I think that as a country, whatever, as a elect, as a as a citizenry, like it, we all kind of needed just like a fucking breather. There's no question that we needed like a moment to just check the fuck out and not give a shit, right? Like, I know COVID's bad. We all, you know, now, you know, Fauci's been unmuzzled. So hopefully, like, you could just maybe just like we can just hard close all of our news apps <clears throat> and just assume that Fauci and Biden are getting shit done. And, you know, certainly when it comes to the virus, to COVID, that is absolutely the case. Um, when it comes to other things, perhaps a bit less so. And, I, you know, I've, I've never been a big Biden fan. I didn't vote for him in the primary. That's for fucking sure. And I just, whatever. Like, maybe Bernie couldn't have won. Maybe Warren couldn't have won. But who knows? But it doesn't really matter because, thank fucking God, Biden beat Trump. And the last month, I've been impressed with just the level of competency of folks that he's been installing at all levels of his government to the extent that I've been paying attention. Um, and, you know, I have a lot of friends on, on, on social media and everything and kind of calling out things that he's already like kind of failed against his promises campaign or otherwise. And all that's super true. And I don't want to discount that certainly when it, and I don't, I'm so ill-informed Josh, like, to be honest with you, like, has he stopped deportations? I don't think so. I think he said he would, but maybe he hasn't. You know, stuff like that, right? Like, who knows? I mean, a lot of people know. I don't. I'm. I'm very ignorant. I, I'll be honest. Yeah. I'm, so like, I, I, I don't think. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's why I'm. I'm in the weird middle zone. That's where I'm at. Yeah. I'll leave well, it I, okay. Before, just before you end all that, what would you give it out of ten? Just out of curiosity, just like a, a number. But like, what? What's ten though? You know, ten is, is ten. ten like, is ten is the ideal Biden that you thought he might have been if he had like followed all his progressive promises everything that you wanted actually you know what 10 is biden embracing henry george uh just like going full off the spectrum doing stuff that hadn't been suggested and then one is biden That's being so trump 
or you know maybe even Hitler. Oh. Let's go more like more extreme. Oh God. <laughs> I mean that's a great question. I guess Hitler to Henry George <laughs> in terms of economic policy. Absolutely. It pro- probably like it's probably more than a five, right? I don't know. I like that. <laughs> oh, that's a good. I mean, that's fine. I just wanted to know if he was doing above average or average on the scale of history. Well, it's an impossible. I feel question. like a lesson, less than five is like he was doing some of the economic policies of Nazi Germany in the early. <laughs> that's 1940s, not what I meant. Okay, most let's, of them. Let's put, um, let's put uh, <laughs> Bill Clinton as a five. Is that a crazy thing to do? Oh my god! Well, it's, yeah, no, it's just, no, it's just so like, it's a, it's inherently impossible. Like that's why I want to. As we I was doing base. research into all the, wait, no, real quick though, this is relevant because I was looking at a lot of you know TV show, best of TV shows, right? And like one show that just kept getting, like, super high marks, and it was a show I never really watched, but now like, now I have all these shows I need to watch, and one of them was that show that's like. That one little white guy who was in, um, he was the principal in uh, Vice Principals, um, about, he reviews everything. Oh, it's so good. That, that show's show? amazing. Yeah, and, and I've watched the Australian one. It's so good. Yeah, review is amazing. Yeah, and it's basically, it's, called so review. Like, it's awesome. So, like, that show is, like, on the top five best shows of the decade for, like, multiple publications that I trust. Interesting. Okay, so anyhow, I feel like that's what's, what, that's what you're making me do. I understand. And I give it a... Uh, you know, I, I guess, like, he's not going to solve systemic racism ever, and he's probably not going to do it in his first 100 days, so, I don't know. I give it a, I give it a six and a half. I give it a six and a half. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. that's. I, I was going to say, okay I feel that. like yeah. I'm at a seven right now, but I feel like my policies in general are probably a little bit closer to Biden's than yours. Not that I'm at all simpatico with Biden, but... I also no, no, that's a, that's good to acknowledge. What I've what I've really appreciated about his first month in office is the prioritization of different issues. Now, I do think there is a real issue with his immigration stuff, and he has, you know, we'll see what he does in the first hundred days as a whole. A couple days ago, I read that they were considering giving citizenship to anyone who had been separated at the border. Did you see that thing? I saw like the headline, but I didn't dig into it. Yeah, yeah. Who knows what that's going to play out? But there are ideas that are being suggested that might be able to uh, kind of bridge the gap between what is possible and what I would want out of the situation, where what I want is not going to be attainable within the first hundred days of the Biden administration, in my mind. In the same way that. Guantanamo is still around, and uh, and there are legal. Well, I love that one. That's the perfect example. Yeah, they're just legal. There are a lot of legal issues with shutting down a facility like that, and I know that ice taking apart ice is going to be very complicated. I hope that it continues to happen, and I hope there's progress in it. But for me, I didn't dream that he would be able to shut down everything on the first day, even if he made crazed promises of such kind of kind of things. Um, what I, I guess, like, yeah, like, this, the hedging and the walking back, and I guess I'm I'm also super disconnected, but just around the, the immigration stuff and around the student debt stuff and around, like, I don't actually disagree with the compromise that he's been making in Congress around the, um, the limits of the stimulus payments. Like, that makes Absolutely. complete sense. I'm in a, you know, not, not to get into too much detail, but, like, I'm in a... I'm in a bracket where I probably, as a as a family, wouldn't be eligible for. I think it made it so it was either like reducing versus all or nothing, and like either way, like I'll be honest, like I don't. We both have our jobs, you know. We don't need stimulus payments, and if they can save money and get those payments to people that really need them, and not by not giving us payments, then of course I'm down for that. I don't need that money. You know that's great. Yeah. Of course. So that that's uh, that's not a comp that's not a compromise that I don't I even give a shit about. I think it actually makes complete sense. Like make make the money make the cash um, uh, more targeted. But I, what what I really have appreciated in that regard is like the things that I think he has prioritized in a big way. Obviously, the appointees is like a um, 
official necessity. and natural part of yeah it's a necessity within the administration but i do like most of the appointees he's put up for the so far more importantly the prioritization seems to have been number one covid number two the yep. economy and number yep. three which was kind of a surprise to me was has seemed to be like epa sort of stuff like it seems to be like he is prioritizing climate change as something to deal with at least yeah in in i i don't see it as much in his messaging but i see it in the actions that the administration has taken so far and so for me, as somebody who like, those were kind of my big three issues of the last year. Not that BLM is definitely like in that issues and they need to be dealt with. But I also think those issues are harder to deal with with things like executive actions and stuff. And they're much more grassroots up kind of things that we need to deal with. So I would appreciate better messaging from Biden overall about the things he is doing and the things he wants to do and how he's going to get to those things. But as far as the actual actions... I feel like this is kind of what I would have hoped would have happened at this point. I couldn't, yeah. I think that's a great way to sum it up. And I guess, to be honest with you, you're the first person that's really, like, forced me to think about even how I feel. And I I think I've been not really thinking hard about climate change because I've just been so traumatized and scarred by how fucked we are, excuse me, that I haven't really thought about that much. But I'm really heartened by how much this administration is is committing in rhetoric and in dollars and and in policy i i think to but to climate change yeah i feel yeah that's a huge thing that i I haven't thought much about to be honest which is kind of crazy but and and i agree with you i think i've read about half of the half as much news per day as i was consuming before at least maybe even less than that but it but it does also feel like good right yeah it doesn't feel like i was consuming a healthy amount of news before it's not like i I feel like I read the yeah. news pretty regularly prior to Trump, but when, especially in the later Trump days, it felt like every day was going to be something terrible. And um, yeah, and like you said, it really was like doomsday watching of the news, just waiting for the next tweet or the next uh, anti-science action or the next declaration of war or whatever it was. It was just like all bad. <laughs> and, it was all bad. And I know that it sounds so bad because. He did. There was like one or two things every once in a while he would do. Like he did the uh, uh, pri- the prison reform initiative. That's something I will always think about. There was like these sh- these weird moments where like every once in a while Trump would do something good and it would feel I didn't know how to feel about it. <laughs> You're like I'm I'm confused. Wait, we're we're happy. I'm happy, but I don't. Should I be happy? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, should this be justified by the last hundred days of terrible or not? Uh, anyway. All right, all right. Uh, so let's take a little break right now, and then we'll jump back. This is obviously going to run long, Hunter. I hope you're okay with that. So I'm more than I'm having a blast. Henry and Ops. 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 It's not safe, dog. Buy a better beer. Don't try to be a better human being. 